but we do have a living hope. Christ is risen. Amen. There we go. Hey, there's, there's some of that. Whenever I say Christ is risen, I want to hear you all say he is risen indeed. All right. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Woo. And you know what? Satan got that projector. <laughs> that sucker is burned out. He has gone before us in the new creation. So, but we are going to celebrate nonetheless. <laughs> good morning, family. It's so good to be with you. Visitors, thank you so much for joining us today. You chose the best possible day that you could have chosen to be with us because we're celebrating the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And also, if you are wanting to get plugged into a church, this is a great church family. They are going to surround you with love. They are going to help you through hard times. And we have a really awesome few services lined up after this week as we're going to be looking into what this Holy Spirit means for us, how we can live empowered lives from God, how we can truly live differently because of what we're talking about today, because of the resurrection. So I invite you to join us for that. Before we move forward a little bit more, I want to give a quick shout out to some of our artists who have been painting for us. And, oh, also, I guess, if you guys want to, you can turn around. There's a projector. Sorry, guys, in the balcony. But right here, there's a projector. So if you guys want to see just stuff I'm talking about, it'll be up there. Um, but I want to give a shout out to Ella Hufalar, who made that painting on the left. <laughs> it's just so funny seeing all y'all's heads turn that way. Uh, the painting on the left, she did an awesome job on that for Good Friday. And today up here, Marsha Reagan painted a beautiful painting of the open tomb and the empty tomb. So I want to give a shout out to them. Thank you. Yeah, let's give them a round of applause. Whenever I was a college freshman, I thought I was the Michael Jordan equivalent of college freshmen. I thought I was the big man on campus. I thought I was going to come into this private D2 school and be the popular one, be the one who is going to dominate all the sports and intramurals where the real athletes go. <laughs> and I thought that I was going to be, more importantly, a heartthrob for all the ladies. <laughs> who wouldn't want to marry a dingus, right? <laughs> hey, you're laughing, but I have a holiday named after me that's happening tomorrow. Check your calendars, Dingus Day, it is real. <laughs> Forget the fact that it's spelled a little bit differently. I'm going to count it as my holiday. So you laugh, hey, but it's a coveted last name. Um, but I heard of stories of people finding their significant other or their future spouse like the first week that they hit their college campus. So naturally, I'm walking around and I am looking for that person who is going to be my future wife. And I actually thought I found her on day one. I step onto Harding's campus. I walk on the front lawn, and there I see her in all her majesty, playing ultimate Frisbee on the front lawn. And then I sneak into that game on the opposing team so I can match up against her the whole time. And you have to understand, my flirt game was at its peak. For example, Whenever she caught the frisbee, I would say, nice catch. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And so as the game was ending, 
I was like, okay, I gotta shoot my shot here. And you have to realize I was such a heartthrob in high school that I never went on a date with any woman ever, so I had no idea how to actually ask a girl out. No clue. So I'm panicking in my mind, like, how do I do this? And then by the grace of God, she asks me out. Yeah, right? Uh, forget the details that her friends were with her. Still a date, right? If, you know, it's just you and her and a bunch of her friends. Seems like that, that works. Uh, but we went and got frozen yogurt. And time went on. And we spent more time together. And things were going great, at least in my mind. And then she strikes again. She asked me on another date. And I'm like, wow, God, this is easy. I don't have to do anything. She's just doing all the hard work for me. It's like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. She asked me to watch a movie with her in the lobby of my own dorm. It's like, that's great. I don't even have to go anywhere. I can just walk down steps. So as I'm walking down the steps with my fresh buzz cut, the uh, few mustache hairs I had shaved off, laced in Axe body spray, I was ready to go. And I walk into the lobby, and what do I see? On a couch that sits three, the love of my life is sitting in the middle of that couch next to two other guys. And they're watching a movie on the laptop right in front of them. And the chair that was open for me was over to the side. So as I was sitting there, I couldn't even see the screen really well. I don't even remember what the movie was. I sat there for like 15 minutes. But I had a really good view of the potential love of my life being taken away from me before my very eyes. But as, as I was stewing in self-pity during that time, I made up an excuse. I was like, guys, I'm really sorry. I forgot I have a massive project due tomorrow, and I'm going to go do that. Little did they know that project was to repair a broken heart because I was devastated. Uh, but I really lost hope that it would be possible for a dingus to find love. Maybe that could be, I know dating shows are all the rage. Maybe that could be the next one, a ringus for a dingus or something. <laughs> I don't know, that's terrible. But that wouldn't be for me because God blessed me with a much better person, Abby, and I'm really thankful that I did not fall for ultimate Frisbee girl. <laughs> but on a serious note, I know that many of you in here today have had a rocky relationship with hope. And I don't blame you honestly, because it's hard not to feel hopeless to some degree in this world. Scroll through social media for two minutes. Listen to the news. Watch the news. That's basically all that's being talked about is hopeless stuff. And know that today, this morning, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling fearful about something that is going on in your life right now or something going on in the world, know that you are not alone. There's a lot of people in here who are going through a lot of that right now or have gone through it in the past. And this has been something that's been going on throughout history. It's easy to feel hopeless. But there was one day in history that forever changed everything. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to be in Luke 24 today. I would say it would be on the screen, but, um, you know, it's gone. So uh, if you want... If you want to look back there and just turn around while I'm reading the scripture, you can do that. But otherwise, that's where we'll be. And at this point in the story in Luke, Jesus' disciples, they feel defeated. They feel hopeless because the person that they thought that was going to make Israel return to this place of power ended up dying. 
and with it, their hope and their expectations. And as most of the disciples of Jesus were mourning and feeling like all hope was lost, there were some women who have been faithfully following Jesus and were taking care of the body after Jesus was dead. They come one Sunday morning and they see something terrifying. They see the stone rolled away and they don't find the body in there. Understandably so, you'd be freaked out if that happened. And then they have this vision of two angelic beings saying this, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. So these women, after experiencing this amazing and freaky thing, they run and tell it to all the other disciples, but the disciples don't believe them. Probably because that doesn't really happen much. They, they saw two healings like that in the past, but for Jesus to be living, there's no way. And from that point, the disciples are trying to make sense of what they're going to do with this, what actually happened. And we read of a story of two disciples of Jesus walking towards a village called Emmaus which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. So after this had happened, they're walking home and they're feeling defeated. And then we read this in verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. In what way? I don't know. Maybe he was wearing a wig. But Jesus intentionally was trying to disguise himself to the people he was talking with. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? So this is very clearly a public and talked about thing. If you were an earshot of Jerusalem, you would have heard about what happened to this guy named Jesus. But Jesus plays dumb. And he asks, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Notice that they call him prophet here. They don't call him Messiah. Messiah is the anointed one, the king, the ruler of everything. He calls him a prophet because he died. And their view of the Messiah, that was incompatible. Because the Messiah was supposed to change everything. The Messiah was supposed to lead everyone to a place, or lead Israel to a place of prominence among the world. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. You can hear the disappointment, the defeat the deflation right here. They don't know what to do. They're wondering, where are we going to go now? Their worldview that they believe, they started to deconstruct it and trying to figure out what to do. So a lot of people think they're going to Emmaus because that was maybe their home village. They wanted to go home to try to figure out what to do next. Their hope was dead. And I think all of us can relate to that. I'm sure many of us, either in here today or in the past, have felt like our hope is dead in certain areas. Maybe for you it involves a key relationship in your life. Maybe it's the economy and the financial stress that's happening right now. Maybe it's the divisiveness in this country and in the world. Maybe it's dealing with addiction, anxiety, depression, fear, or shame. 
Maybe it's the loss of life of a loved one in this world. It feels impossible to have hope sometimes. But fast forward in this story a little bit to the point where they make it to Emmaus. It's nearing dinner time and they invite Jesus over to eat with them. Again, not knowing this is Jesus. But in this meal that they're eating together, Jesus reveals himself that it is Jesus. And then they are also shocked to the point where they run back to the disciples, which is a bit of a trek, and they say, it is true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And this is most likely not Simon Peter. Luke refers to Peter as Peter in Luke. So it probably was somebody else. But as they're giving this report, we we read this in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And I I partially think this is Jesus trying to be funny. (laughs) These guys are having a spirited discussion. No, you have to understand. I saw Jesus. Yeah, okay, sure, buddy, sure. And Jesus is just kind of in the back, soaking it all up. And he walks up, he's like, peace be upon you. (laughs) Which in Hebrew, peace is like the greeting. It's like saying, hey, guys, it's me. So he's just sitting in back, waiting for his time to step in. He's like, hey, everyone, how you doing? I just, I think of this as a really funny moment. And they were shook. They thought this was a ghost. And in verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled? This is Jesus. Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, it was too good of a thing to believe. They were so shocked. And they couldn't even believe it. He asked them, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) Which I think is just such a funny detail in this story, right? As again, they're freaking out that this is Jesus. He's like, hey, y'all got any food? I'm a little famished. Could you get me something? And then they give him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. What he's demonstrating here, he's not a ghost. His existence is not a spiritual duality, I leave my soul depart sort of thing. This is flesh and bones Jesus, the same Jesus, which demonstrates to us that in the resurrection, people retain personal features, personal likeness, that in the resurrection, we're not all going to be the same. It's clear that distinction and personality and diversity is a key value of God. If we keep reading in verse 44, it says, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, a.k.a. all of Scripture, all the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to bring it to fullness, to bring it to completion. And in verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures, which illustrates to us that the resurrection is a key for us unlocking the rest of Scripture. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus, and his disciples are seeing this. His resurrection is everything. And he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah. So right here we see Jesus calling himself the Messiah. He is the authority. He is the king. He is the anointed one. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. There's that God that loves diversity. That God that values every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is good news for the world. This is not just for one people. And he says that you are witnesses of these things. And after this, he ascends into heaven. 
And he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Spirit. And then in the end, the first or last two verses of this chapter, it says, then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And those two verses are incredibly important. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But Luke's account of the resurrection, it demonstrates three primary things to me. The first is that the resurrection is a worldview-changing historical event. First of all, in my opinion, any historian worth their salt would believe that there was a person named Jesus or called Christ that lived and died under Pontius Pilate. I think there are several sources outside of the Bible that, it, that talk about this, and it's very clear that that's the case, in my opinion. One major one is from Tacitus. He's a Roman historian that was born 20 years after Jesus' death, and uh, he's talking about Christians during the time of Nero. So I'm going to read a little excerpt. It's going to be on that screen if, if you can read it. But um, it says that they, called, they were called Christians by the populace. Christus, which is the Latin word for Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So this is a Roman historian talking about Jesus actually dying at the time that he did. I, there are several other sources I could go, but for those of you who are not history nerds like I am, and your eyes are already glazing over whenever I start talking about this, uh, I will not keep going down different pathways with this. But I think it's really clear that there was a man named Jesus, that he really lived, and he really died. Now, more of the debate comes with the resurrection, obviously, right? Because our experience is people die, and they stay in the ground. It's a lot harder to believe. And I understand how absurd it sounds, okay? I am somebody who is skeptical by nature. I ask a lot of questions. This was one of the things I had to really wrestle with whenever I was making my faith my own, was did this really happen? And though I do believe that this requires faith to believe this, I also think there's good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. First, I think many historians would consider the accounts of Jesus to at least be partially reliable historical sources. I know some people have undergone projects that try to strip all the supernatural parts from the text and just get to the Jesus of history as if we can really do it that way. But one of the major reasons why people think it's legitimate in its historicity is because of how quickly it was written after the time of Jesus. So this is not the time of Twitter, right? You can't just live tweet the things that you're experiencing and feeling. This is the time of everything is spread via oral tradition. It was communicated about. And then as eyewitnesses are getting older and they want to record this stuff, then they start writing it down. So the fact that some of the earliest writings of Jesus came 20 years after his death is very impressive and really adds to its historical weight. And also, just talking about the details of this text, if Luke is trying to write an account that is trying to get people to convince him that something that didn't really happen actually happened, he did not do a good job of making it believable. I think what he was really trying to do was trying to say what really happened with it. Because if he was trying to sell it, I have a couple questions for him. Why would Luke entrust his agenda to the witness of women whenever their testimony at that time was not seen as trustworthy or didn't count in court? Why would Luke do that? 
you feel like you would want to attach it to someone a little bit more prominent of a disciple or something. But what's amazing is God entrusted women with the witness of the resurrection. God entrusted them. And what's amazing, the irony of this, is it actually makes it more historically credible. <laughs> Another question that I have is what's with all the random, seemingly insignificant details of this text? If you were really trying to sell something, why would you attribute one of the eyewitnesses to a guy named Cleopas, who we barely talk about, ever? I think this is the only spot that he's mentioned in scripture. Why? Why wouldn't you attribute it to someone who's more prominent, a disciple whose name has been brought up several other times? Probably because he was actually an eyewitness of Jesus. And this really happened. Another question I have is why would you portray the doubt and skepticism of the disciples? If you're trying to make it seem like, oh, everyone just picked this up and believed it, why would you include these questions? And the biggest detail for me is seeing how this chapter ends. Why would Jesus, or why would Jews, so quickly worship a man? You have to understand, that is radical. Because in the Jewish understanding, that would be an audacious claim to say that God is a man. Why would they do that? The thing that they have been taught, what they have believed about God for so long, has been completely blown up and destroyed because they are witnessing the fact that Jesus was dead and he is not anymore. And that changes everything. That fact led them to follow Jesus to the bitter end. You have to understand, Christianity is a self-sacrificial belief system. There is nothing for selfish gain in this world with Christianity. You have to love your enemies. You have to be generous with your wealth. You have to turn the other cheek. That doesn't sound like humans. That doesn't sound like the way that we operate in this world. And they also faced heavy persecution. For example, all but one of Jesus' apostles were murdered. You would not give up your life and gladly face death for something you were trying to sell as fake. And the fact that they were so convinced about seeing the risen Lord and how they were so quick to give up their lives for what they believed, that is what made Christianity catch like wildfire. The world wanted to know what on earth could possess people who were about to get crucified, who were about to be burned. What could possess them to say, bring it on? How can you do that if this is fake? They were convinced that they had seen the Lord. And this leads us to a second point. The resurrection makes Jesus the authority over everything. If Jesus permanently rose from the dead and is living today, that means he is different from every human who has ever lived in history. This is an act of God. C.S. Lewis argued that all people have three choices when it comes to Jesus. You must either believe that he is a liar and that the things that he said in these gospel accounts was not true. You have to say that he was a lunatic, that he really believed he was the things that he said he was, but was totally misguided. Or you have to believe that he was Lord. And in my opinion, whenever I'm looking at what I believe is the historical fact of the resurrection, and you couple that with the character of Jesus, how there is nothing shady about him, that he is such a good human in the way that he lives his life. And you look at his teachings, and I don't see anything morally questionable about it. You couple all of that together, and to me, it makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And I am convinced of this. And I know people, we can, we can get angry about stuff in the Bible. We can kind of wish that we could erase parts of the Bible. Or just we kind of do that with the way we live sometimes. We act like things don't actually say things in there. And similarly, a lot of us might have a really bad experience with church, and we may not want anything to do with church. But here's the thing. You have to do something with this. If Jesus really died and Jesus really rose, you have to deal with that fact. Because what this means is if that happened, that means Jesus is the king of the universe. That means Jesus is the authority over everything. And so if I don't like something that Jesus teaches or does, who cares? <laughs> he is the authority of my life. And what's amazing is if you walk in the steps of Jesus over time, you see that he is trying to give you the best life imaginable. He is trying to give you a flourishing life. And Jesus is the only ruler, the only authority of your life that is not going to ultimately disappoint you. And finally... The resurrection, it gives us incomparable, incomparable hope for the future. Maybe you're someone who doesn't really buy the resurrection. But my question is, don't you want to? Don't you want to believe that this is true? Because the alternative, the worldview in many, in today's world, it's one of total hopelessness. That nothing really matters. You can ultimately do whatever you want. And there's so many movies and TV shows that I feel like try to express that. And I think if people were honest with themselves, there is so much crippling fear whenever you think about your death. And that's why we try to survive as long as we can. That's why Jeff Bezos is spending millions of dollars trying to figure out a way to reverse aging. We try to delay the inevitable that death is coming. And a large part of what makes death so terrible is the sense of loss that we feel. That understanding of I had something and now I don't and I'm never going to have it again. We can mourn that our bodies are getting older and I'm never going to be able to go back to the body of my youth to do the things I loved. We can mourn that whenever our children leave the house that I'm not going to have that consistent time with them anymore. We can mourn that whenever we lose a loved one, we're not going to see their smile. We're not going to hear their laugh. It's really sad, and it's, it's scary. But one empty tomb changes everything. Because what Jesus' resurrection means is that we too will be raised. God will restore what has been taken away. Your body will be restored at full strength and incorruptible. We will be reunited with those who have gone before us and after us in the Lord. And we will get the flourishing life, the life that deep down all of us have been wanting. What the resurrection ensures is that you will miss out on no good thing. What we are taught in the resurrection is that winter only lasts for so long because spring is coming. And though there is such a good thing coming, it wouldn't be good if we were not sure that we would see it if we were not sure that we would be there. And this is where Christianity is different from every world religion because we can have the assurance that we will see it. We can know with confidence that we will be raised because the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the grave is living in us. 
and it changes everything. Because the wages of sin is death, right? AKA the consequence for our sin is death. But Jesus overcoming death, Jesus beating death, means that that debt is paid. That means that we don't have to worry about this. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen to us when we die. We know we will be raised with Christ. And to think otherwise is to think that Christ's sacrifice and resurrection was not powerful enough to forgive your sins personally. And read this, Hebrews 10, verse 14. I think this verse demonstrates assurance maybe better than any other verse in Scripture. It says, for by a single offering, what Christ did in his death, burial, resurrection, a single offering, he has perfected. He has made holy. He has called us pure <laughs> for all time. The things that we have done, the things that we think there is no forgiveness for, and the things that we're going to do, for all time he has perfected those being sanctified, those who are in the process of being holy, a.k.a. us, <laughs> right? We have ultimate assurance that Jesus' death and resurrection means victory for us. Because of the empty tomb, as we sang earlier, we really can face tomorrow. Because of the empty tomb, our sin is destroyed, and evil will not have the final word. Because of the empty tomb, all depression and addiction and anxiety will ultimately go away forever and never come back. Because of the empty tomb, all pain, disease, and mourning will be done away with. Because of the empty tomb, we can forgive the people who have wronged us and restore relationships right now. Because of the empty tomb, we can say with confidence, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Because no matter what happens in this life, no matter what tragedy comes our way, what Jesus' resurrection means is victory, ultimate, final victory, an everlasting hope that we cannot find anywhere else. And what's amazing is that resurrection life, it doesn't start after we die. It starts right now. It starts today. And perhaps this is the biggest reason why I believe in the resurrection is because I have seen it. I have seen it in myself. I am not the person that I was. Thank goodness I'm not freshman Kyle anymore. <laughs> But I am not the person that I was. I know the deepest sins of my life. God has freed me from them. I know the problems that I've had in trying to please people and attaching that to my identity. That is killed. <laughs> that is gone. Because of Jesus. I am a different person because of the resurrection. And it's not just in myself that I've seen this. I have seen this in other people. I see it every time an alcoholic puts down the bottle for the last time. Right? I see it whenever marriages are restored in the name of Jesus, whenever it seems like there's no hope, right? I see it whenever people who are so attached to shame and they can't get past it and they can't see any worth in themselves come out of it after they realize that Jesus has given them a new identity, right? Resurrection is not make-believe. This is real stuff. This is powerful stuff. And it changes everything. And its power cannot be contained. 
So this morning, we're going to take communion together. And what we're reminded every time that we take communion is what Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection means for us. Did you know that the first couple centuries after observing the Lord's Supper, it was a celebration. The word Eucharist, which is another word it's called, it comes from the word to give thanks. It is a celebration. We are giving a toast to the king of the universe, and we are reminded that one day, one day, we are going to eat and drink with all of those brothers and sisters who have gone before us and after us at this great feast, this great wedding feast that is to come. It is a celebration when we take this meal. And this morning, if you want to begin your resurrection life, we can help you take that step. That's what baptism symbolizes. It is a death to ourselves. It is a death to who we were, the worst parts of ourselves, and a rising to new life that is found in Jesus. So if you have any interest in being baptized today, please don't hesitate. Whenever we're taking communion, come talk to me, talk to somebody, because we would love to celebrate another resurrection today. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate the victory of Jesus over this world. So after I pray, I'm going to invite all of you to come up to the tables and take communion as well as if you have flowers. We have a tradition where we stick flowers in the cross and it's really, really beautiful and powerful. And there are supposed to be baskets of flowers, I think somewhere around here. Uh, but we'll find flowers for you if you do not have any. But what we're doing in this action as we were reminded, this was a symbol of death. This was a symbol of pain. This was a symbol of defeat, being a criminal. But as we were putting flowers on it, we are reminded that, that God took what was meant for evil and turned it into good. This is a symbol of hope. This is a symbol of new life and resurrection now. Because our God brings life from death. So after I pray, go ahead and come down and... You can decorate these. They're really beautiful, great photo op, by the way. But, <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for your rising from the dead. God, this changes everything. This means that the stuff that is deep in our lives, that we feel like there is no hope in ever overcoming, you have spoken victory over it. You have spoken freedom over it. We do not have to be attached to the shame and guilt that we have been because your sacrifice and resurrection has freed us from it. We are a new creation in you. Lord, help us to live into this new identity. Help us to live into this new life. Help us to be a group of people that is the aroma of heaven, that when people see us, they say, something is different about that person. Help us to live with the joy of the resurrection, knowing that in the end, all will be made well and that we will miss out on no good thing. Lord, it is only in you, only in you that we can find this hope. It's only in you that we can find this hope to face tomorrow. So whenever times are uncertain, whenever things are chaotic and we feel like there's nowhere to turn. You have conquered all of our fear and all of our sin and all of the things that are 
cancerous to our lives. Lord, we thank you so much that you have seen us worthy to die and rise for us. And you would do it all for us again, I know, because you love us that much. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are and the life that you give to us. In your son's name, in Jesus' name, amen.